Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here with you all this morning as we open God's Word together. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 7. We are in the last uh, few teachings of Jesus as we close out. The Sermon on the Mount will be in verses 15 through 23 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, we have it on the screen as well. I'm going to read for us this morning out of here. It says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this morning, there are two warnings in this passage that Jesus gives us. The first is that there are false teachers among us, or there will be false teachers that come among us. And the second is what they are like, that they are wolves. Now, Jesus gives us this very serious warning that as we journey through the Christian life, as we seek to live within the kingdom of God, along the narrow way, false prophets will come among us. They come under the guise of speaking truth to help along the way, but what they proclaim harms and destroys like a ravenous wolf. It's not just the enticers that we read about in Proverbs last week that lead us into sin. These are men and women disguised with truth that leads with destruction. This isn't a warning of if it will happen, but rather a warning of when false teachers and prophets and wolves will come among us. This was true for the first listeners of Jesus, and it's true for us today. So this means that the main concern of this passage is not that false teachers will come. He tells us this. The main concern is that we'll recognize them when they do. This is the instruction from Jesus. So today, our goal is simply this. We want to understand what a prophet is, how to recognize the bad prophets, the bad false teachers, and to see the true prophet in Jesus. There is a potential that false prophets will be unrecognizable to us. So Jesus gives us instruction on how we are to recognize them. So let's quickly look at what a prophet is. I have this definition up here for us. A prophet in the Old Testament is a person, either male or female, who functions as God's spokesperson and is commissioned by God to deliver his word either to individuals or groups. We may have this tendency to think of prophets as only uh, future telling, foretelling of the future, of what would happen. And when we think about it, we today are benefits of this kind of work from prophets. We still rely and trust and hope in these words even today. Consider the words of Jesus in Luke 24 where he tells them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Which means this, 
we trust in the words of the prophets from thousands of years ago that have testified to the coming Messiah. We hold fast to their words. Think of some of the amazing prophecies that happened hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus' life. First, that the Messiah would be born of a woman in Genesis 3.15. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That the Messiah would be born a virgin, Isaiah 17. We see through the prophetic word that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham, be a descendant of Isaac, Jacob, and David, and he would come through the line of the tribe of Judah. We read that he would be rejected by us people, that he would be praised by little children. He would be betrayed, and money that's used to betray him would be used to buy a field. He would be falsely accused, beaten, hated without cause, crucified. They'd gamble for his garments. His hand and feet would be pierced. He would be resurrected, and he would be a sacrifice from sin. We value the words of true prophets even today because it gives validity to Jesus' words. Jesus says, you want to understand the fruit of my ministry? Look at the words of the prophets. They testify about me. So these prophetic words of the Old Testament, they were all foretelling what was to come, but the role of the prophet was also foretelling of what one should do. Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 18 through 21 will kind of be our text to use to define what a prophet is for us this morning. It says this, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that message the Lord has not spoken. So we see just from this passage that a prophet tells what is to come. We've seen this from the work of the role in the prophets already about the Messiah. They'll prophesy about exile. They'll prophesy about the judgment on the day of the Lord. But a prophet also tells us what the Lord has commanded. Consider the prophet Nathan who confronts David in his sin. Consider the prophet Jonah who is to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. The role of the prophet is foretelling, but it's also forthtelling. They give us instruction they confront sin, tell us to repent, and turn to the Lord. So what is a false prophet? According to Deuteronomy 18, we've seen it. One who speaks what the Lord has not commanded, and one who speaks in the name of other gods. So as we come to this passage here in Matthew 7, we have this preloaded for us to understand what a true and false prophet is. But when we read this passage in Matthew 7, we can easily miss the most important part of the passage because we'll instantly jump to false prophets and wondering who they are, are they among us, and all of our attention will be focused there. But what we need to see is the claim that Jesus is making. Jesus is identifying himself as the true prophet, and he's challenging you to put his life to the test. What he does is offer for us a way, even 2,000 plus years later, to test his words by the fruit of his life. If we have been tracking with Matthew what's happened up until this point, we'll see that Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God. Deuteronomy 18, he's one that speaks on behalf of God. So Jesus is saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Jesus is the prophet that claims to be speaking on behalf of God. But we also see that Jesus is speaking and teaching with authority. He'll say things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. That's a bold move by Jesus. But then notice what he says in chapter 7. Jesus is talking about on the last day, many will stand before who? Him. And what did these people do? They prophesied in whose name? His name. They cast out demons in whose name? Jesus' name. See that Jesus is not just saying that he is the, a good prophet. He is saying that he is the true prophet, but he's also saying that he's more than a prophet. Even in this passage, Jesus is equating his name with Yahweh's name. Do you see that? Jesus is making an incredibly bold claim in this passage, and then he's challenging us to see and test his life by the fruits of his life. Remember what God said in Deuteronomy, to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, and now Jesus is going and speaking of the authority of his name and the Father's. So, in Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus is baptized, and these two passages here uh, can immediately, should make us draw back to the authority that Jesus is going to have. Let me read it briefly for you here. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, an honest confession, as I grew up, when I read the passage of this and the baptism of Jesus, I just thought, well, that's weird. Like, what? The heavens open up and God declares and a bird comes down and lands on him. I don't get that. But when we place it under the proper context of what Jesus is quoting from or what the gospel writer Matthew is pulling from, we see the intense foundation that he's laying on who Jesus is. He's laying Jesus out to be the true prophet as the beloved son. In Psalm 2, he says this, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and lead to your destruction. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. With the baptism of Jesus, there is a declaration that he is the beloved and true son. But also with the baptism of Jesus, we see that he is the true prophet that has the spirit of God that rests on him. Isaiah 42 prophesies of the Messiah in this way, saying, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So even here, what we have is a declaration of who Jesus is, how he's doing it, and what he is going to do. And this is why this portion of Scripture is even weightier than a warning. Jesus is elevating himself to say, this is who I am, and you will know it by the fruit of my life. He's claiming to be the true prophet, but more than a prophet, one that has authority, power, rule, and dominion. And this helps us to see what a false prophet is. So now we don't just rely on instruction from the Scripture. We rely on instruction as well from Jesus. A false prophet is one that acts and moves and is motivated contrary to the way of the true prophet, the one who is and is to come. So when we read descriptions of false prophets in the New Testament, 
we will see that Paul's going to get there in Timothy and in Titus, uh, but Jesus isn't there yet. Uh, there's going to be descriptions that they will, uh, false teachers will deny the resurrection by preaching a different gospel. But Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, and he's not necessarily speaking about the cross here. So Jesus' warnings against false prophets are present tense, meaning that we can understand by his words what it means to be a false prophet. The warning that Jesus gives is that they are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, meaning this, they appear safe, meaning they are not always easily identifiable, meaning that the way that we are to be on guard is to see what they produce. It means that false teachers in wolves can use right language. They can say things that sound good and right that we should follow them. Who is Jesus primarily targeting here? Is it not the Pharisees? Those who have the appearance of holiness and righteousness, but they are serving themselves and not seeking the will of the Father. So we can't just take affirming correct doctrine as the only litmus test for a false prophet. We see the Pharisees. They have good doctrine, but their doctrine is false because it doesn't lead them to loving their neighbor. Is good doctrine vital? Absolutely it is, but it's not the only litmus test for us. So how are we determined? Jesus says, by the fruit of their lives. The fruit of, the, of, the, the fruit of a wolf fosters division. How do we spot a false prophet? A fruit of a wolf fosters division. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. For those that speak falsely against you with anger and murder and not having love. A wolf is identified in a flock by scattering the sheep. They all run and leave the most vulnerable open to attack. So how might we see this in the life of our church or in the life of other churches? Is disagreement that leads to division, dividing the flock. Now, I'm not referencing denominational differences here. There are disagreements that we say we'll have with maybe a Presbyterian friend that practices things that we don't hold to or has different points of theology. It creates a practice that's different from ours, and that leads to us worshiping in different churches. I'm not talking about biblical disagreements uh, that lead to divisions in our practice, but not divisions in our mission. We may disagree on practices that separate us from joining on Sundays, but that does not separate us from partnering for the advancement of the proclamation of the gospel. So denominational differences are not evidence of false prophets. We can't just say, well, because they're Presbyterian or because they're Methodist, that means they're automatically false and we're the true ones here. There might be reasons that they're false. They might hold the false doctrine, but denominational differences aren't there alone. How we identify is a division that wolves create. Disagreement that leads to us being unmerciful. Disagreement that leads to us divided because we can't forgive what someone has done. False prophets speak on behalf of the name of the Lord, but they divide the unity of love and peace found in the Spirit. A false prophet is one who will foster an attitude of contempt towards people. Jesus tells us to love each other and even our enemy. Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us. So a false prophet is going to be one that doesn't love, one that doesn't love enemies, one that creates walls and divisions and contempt for those who are outside or maybe even inside our church. Jesus has commanded us to love one another. A false prophet 
is will be one that says, yeah, but, I don't know, if they would just change the way that they do things. No, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. To identify a wolf among us, consider the love that they have for their brothers and sisters. You can't claim to love God and theology and foster a hate for an enemy, much less your brother in church. Are we a church? Are we people that are known for outdoing and showing honor, encouraging? Or is there always a critical spirit? Do we seek unity, foster peace, or are we always angry and bitter at people? Are our judgments merciless? Or is there a genuine concern for repentance? A wolf is one that casts judgment without the goal of restoration. Judgment in a mean and mean-spirited and critical way. We saw this a few weeks ago, that taking the log out of our eyes or judgment is always with the goal of restoration. A false teacher, a wolf in our body, will be one that just casts judgment for the sake of judgment. They don't seek restoration. They don't seek correction and change lovingly. They just cast judgment. They just separate and divide. Listen to Paul in Romans 2.1. He says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think God, you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you towards repentance. False prophets do not operate with the mode of mercy, kindness, and love. They offer, they foster division. Now, I want to offer a caveat here because there are reasons that people leave churches that doesn't make them or you a false prophet. I'm not saying that all division in the church is the work from a wolf. In churches, there are disagreements that happen and real damage that is done both emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes even physically. Separating from a church doesn't mean that you are a false prophet, and it doesn't mean that that church is a false prophet either. Forgiveness takes one person, reconciliation takes two. And reconciliation doesn't mean that relationships are stored to the way that they were. If you've experienced traumatic spiritual, physical abuse, and both parties are seeking forgiveness and repentance, it doesn't mean that we just go on living. That takes time, and sometimes healing happens away from that person. Reconciliation is the aim, but it's not always the outcome. If you're coming from a church that was spiritually abusive, reconciliation doesn't mean that you just move on and you forget about what happened. Forgive and forget, we'll say. However, we may forgive, but we'll most likely never forget. Those wounds cut deep. To know that we are not operating in a false manner, do we seek compassion and mercy and reconciliation? That may happen away, but false prophets foster division, and they do not seek reconciliation. Second, we'll see in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, false prophets are power-hungry. We see that they love to serve God and money. They're self-seeking. Their aim is to be seen and heard. First Timothy says this about a false prophet, that he's puffed up with conceit and pride. He understands nothing. A false prophet wants the publicity of preaching without the pain of pastoring. 
A false prophet wants the publicity of preaching without the pain of pastoring. They want to be seen and heard as the voice of truth and reason, but they don't want to get deep and dirty in the muck and mire of people's lives. They don't want to walk through very painful, sinful seasons of life. Today, we live in a world where there are more voices that influence us and shape us than ever. There are more famous celebrity pastors and voices that guide our learning and sway our reasoning. Just because they are well, a well-known pastor doesn't mean that they're false, but it also doesn't mean that they are known to be a true teacher either. It's faulty reasoning to assume that their legitimacy is based on the success of their ministry. The Mormon church is very large. It has a very large following, but they preach a different gospel. They reduce, reduce Jesus to not being God. They are false prophets. Within the life of our church, how do we identify those with false motives? This may not be as common in the life of our church as it is within the sphere of our lives. What I mean is that we consume a lot of information that's just not, uh, that's not only, uh, say, Christian information. So, for example, the top podcast, um, I think on all of the charts, is the Joe Rogan podcast. Now, Joe Rogan is operating as a prophet of our day. He is operating under the pretense of finding truth and spreading this information out. But he does not claim Jesus, which means that he is faulty in his reasoning. He is a false prophet in that way. We need to be careful with the voices that we allow to shape and influence our lives. A false prophet is one that has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels with words. I think about our politicians of this day. Whether you are on the right or the left, we have them on both sides. They speak in a manner with truth that condemns our nation. But some of these men and women, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Listen to Paul and Titus. He says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Does a celebrity pastor or the person that you listen to, do they care more and spend more time about dunking on people? Are they more concerned about arguing points of theology Quarrels about the law, or have they devoted themselves, like Paul says, to good works? Do our words bring unity in Christ Jesus, or do they bring dissension and quarrels? Is the law important? Is studying good theology important? Absolutely it is. It's of utmost importance. But because we hold to right doctrine doesn't mean that we have it all together. I heard a story of Karl Barth. Uh, you may know this name. He's a famous Swiss theologian. He's known for being a brilliant conservative mind uh, that made many contributions to the study of God through his work. But it's recently come to light that Karl Barth had an affair, and not just an affair. The woman lived with him in his home. The only way to access her room was through his study. When asked about his son's work and legacy as a theologian, this was his mom's response. What good is the most brilliant theology 
if it's shipwrecked in your home. Church, what good is it if we hold to right doctrine, right truth, we profess the right things, but it only stays in this room? It doesn't push us to good works within our community. We should be careful to watch our way along the path, to be faithful in the mundane, to devote ourselves to good works. False prophets do not. They produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. A wolf among us is one that creates constant friction. There's always a problem. They're always speaking ill of someone else. There's always something that they need to bring up or say. Now, this doesn't give us a license, though, to thwart every rebuke that comes our way. Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians, not because he doesn't have the right theology or doctrine, but because it has not moved him to right action. He's still separating himself from the Gentiles. There are times when rebuke is necessary among the body. But do we rebuke in a way that is loving? Do we offer correction with mercy? Does our rebuke draw others to restoration or does it lead to more pain? Relationships and community become toxic when the bond of having a common enemy becomes stronger and more compelling and more delicious than the bond of a shared commitment to reconciliation and truth. Wolves lead to division, dissension, friction, and anger. But Jesus leads us to share truth and mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, and love. Now, we could pull up many more things of identifying false prophets within the Sermon on the Mount or in the words of 1 Timothy or in Titus. But I want to transition now to the fruit of the true prophet, the fruit that is demonstrated by a true believer. Jesus is a true prophet who is also claiming more than prophetic utterances. He's claiming the kingdom with authority. And what does Jesus teach us? Forgiveness, humility, seeking the will of the Father, seeking the kingdom and his righteousness, a life of mercy. Remember how he ended uh, the parable, or not the parable, the teaching of judging a brother. He says this, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. A true prophet is one that operates under mercy and righteousness and kindness and love. First Timothy says this, after outlining what it means to be a false prophet, here's what he says for us to do. But as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Are our lives marked by that? Look at the fruit of Jesus, the true prophet. He's marked by humility. He's poor in spirit with meekness. Humility makes us vulnerable. By becoming, by humbling ourselves, we lose protection of pride by allowing our guard to come down. By valuing others, by seeking the good in others, we put their needs before our own. And that takes great humility. Now see Christ, the truly humble one, the ultimate form of humility, the creator of all things on heaven and earth, becoming flesh to walk among us. C.S. Lewis has this quote, he says, It costs God nothing, as far as we know, to create nice, beautiful things. Through the word of his power, life comes into existence. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. It cost him his life. See the humility of Jesus. Also see the mercy of Jesus. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus restores us through his mercy. 
He is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. He is the one on the cross after getting spit on, mocked, beaten, and what's his prayer? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the ultimate one in humility and mercy. How much more do we have room to grow to be like our Savior? Lastly, the fruit of the true prophet is he seeks the will of the Father. Jesus is the new and greater Moses. He comes onto the mountain proclaiming the new law. Like Moses, he sees people and he gives the law at hand and he gives blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And now at the end of here, Jesus declares those who are cast out workers of lawlessness. The workers of lawlessness are the ones that do not do the work of the kingdom of God. Their lives are not marked by blessings. Their lives are self-seeking and promoting. They do not offer forgiveness and mercy. And by not doing these things, they have abandoned the will of the Father. What does it mean to seek the will of the Father? Read the Sermon on the Mount. It means a posture of humility and mercy. It means a posture of forgiveness. It is a posture of seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Here's C.S. Lewis again. It says this, there would be no sense in saying you trusted Jesus if you did not take his advice. Jesus shows us truly what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus is a true prophet, and he invites us to see the fruit of his life as an example. Now, here's one thing that I want us to see in Deuteronomy 18. What happens to false prophets according to Deuteronomy 18 and Matthew 7? In Deuteronomy 18, it says, But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' own words are to say that that tree that bears bad fruit will be cut down and put into the fire. Is Jesus the true prophet? What do we see of his life? They accuse Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan. They're saying that he prophesies and does these things by someone else's power. It's not of the Lord's. They accuse him of blasphemy and want to kill him. Jesus equates himself with God. And they fulfill the command of Deuteronomy by putting Jesus to death. So we test Jesus' life. He asks us to test his life, the fruit of his life, if he's a true prophet, by his life. Is he a false prophet because he was killed? He would be if it wouldn't be that he raised from the dead. Jesus conquered death. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus is the true prophet. Because he's more than a prophet. He is the one that has authority on heaven and earth. And his kingdom rules and reigns. I don't know where you are with your walk in Jesus at today. Maybe you've had challenging moments in your life and wondering if Jesus is legitimate and true and good news for you. Jesus invites you to test his words as the true prophet. They put him to death, but he conquered it. And Jesus says, because he lives we too can live. Now, if you have uh, noticed throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I have brought um, a lot of attention to be, being seen, seek and seen. We see this uh, repeated all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Those that want to be seen, they pray loudly, but the Father is the one who sees those in private. 
those that want to be celebrated, they give loudly or they give boisterously, but the Father sees those things done in secret. Another Hebrew word for prophet in the Old Testament is seer. Jesus is the true one that sees all things. He sees the actions of our lives and the motives of our hearts. And Jesus is not just the prophet, but he's the shepherd king. I was reading uh, a commentary on this. It was by Dr. Quarles. And he brought up uh, one of Aesop's fables. And it was interesting because Aesop's fables uh, were written in, I think, the 6th to 7th century B.C. So they were before Jesus' time. And he made mention that uh, Jesus' reference to wolves and sheep might be something that they would have read back then of Aesop's fable. Who knows? But then he quotes a portion of a fable, one of Aesop's, about a wolf that dresses up in sheep's clothing. He sneaks into the pen. He's hidden among the sheep. But in the middle of the night, the shepherd comes. He finds the wolf, and he destroys him. The hope that we have in the gospel is that Jesus is not just a prophet, but he's the good shepherd king. He guards his flock, and he will not allow those to go unpunished that do not seek his kingdom, that do not seek his righteousness. As we read this passage here today, I would be lying if I didn't say to you, and there are moments when I wondered, have I been a false prophet? Have I sought dissension? Have I been angry? Have my words been careless? And if we're honest with all of ourselves, the question to that answer would be yes. But we serve the good king who shepherds his flock, who gives us a spirit to make us more like him, to seek his kingdom in his ways. So three points of application for us. One, trust the fruit of Jesus's life. Test it by his words through the scriptures. See him as the risen King Jesus. Two, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus sends those away even though they profess to do mighty works in his name. But Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven enters into the kingdom of heaven. What is the will of of the Father? To believe in his Son, to trust his Son. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then third, test your life by its fruit. Paul in 1 Timothy says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Jesus has commanded us to walk along the narrow way. And we do this by his words and his instruction. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray um, that as a community here of followers of you, that we bind ourselves, that we are marked in such a way by your words that we be a community of mercy and forgiveness, gentleness and peace, that we be a community that holds tightly to right doctrine, Father, that we love to study the things of your word, that we meditate on it day and nightly, that it mark and shape our lives, but that it also push and call us to action. Jesus, you say right doctrine and right theology is fulfilled in the law and the prophets by loving one another. Jesus, help us to love one another. Father, when we are tempted to divide and have dissension, Father, quickly bring us to repentance and humility. Father, quickly bring us to a place of mercy and love. Help us to always look to you, our good king and our loving shepherd. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.